1: This programme is about a man who died in County Galway 120 years ago. To most of us now, I'm afraid his name may mean very little. At best, perhaps, a few lines of verse remembered vaguely from a school anthology. Monsieur Raftery and Fille, Lawn
3: Borghishus
1: Graw. Twelve short lines which have been translated by Douglas Hyde.
3: I am Raftery the poet, full of hope and love with eyes that have no light, with gentleness that has no misery, going west upon my pilgrimage by the light of my heart, feeble and tired to the end of my road. Behold me now, and my face to a wall, a playing music unto empty pockets.
1: Much has been made of this little poem, with its gentle, pathetic melancholy and the wry twist in the last verse. It has given rise to something of the nature of a romantic myth, in which the blind minstrel makes his sad and lonely way through a darkened world, the very type and figure of the poet hidden in the light of thought, singing hymns unbidden, or if not unbidden, at least without hope of reward. Now the trouble about this picture of Raftery is that it runs counter to the whole traditional Gaelic idea of the poet and his function, and so those twelve short lines have been subjected recently a good deal of cold critical analysis, resulting in the sad but I think sound conclusion that eight of them at any rate are not the work of Raftery, but of someone whose feeling for the English Romantics was stronger than his understanding of the craft of Gaelic verse. Four lines only are current in oral tradition. The versions vary, but they usually run something like this. Raftery port is a horn le bala, a shinim keol g'fokhi follow the pathos and the melancholy are gone, and we're left with the wry twist. Now even this much is generally ascribed not to Raftery himself, but to a sharp-tongued rival. Oral tradition is the main source of our knowledge of Raftery, although a great deal of his verse was written down and has been preserved in manuscript. But 120 years is a long time, even among a people of long memories, and the the language of raftery is no longer the common vernacular of the East Galway countryside in which he spent the greater part of his life. We are then indebted to those pioneer collectors who recorded the tradition before the language designed, and especially to Douglas Hyde, who brought out his Editio Princeps of the Poet in 1903. Prior to its publication in book form, Hyde's material appeared as a series in the old weekly Freeman, and was read nowhere more avidly than in the Raftery country, as we say, itself. It revived old memories and gave a new lease of life to a dying tradition. Lady Gregory also incorporated much traditional material in her essay on Raftery, which appeared in 1903 in the volume Poets and Dreamers. And so Raftery's verse, both in the original and in translation, came to reach an audience wider than any he himself could have hoped for. But ironically, the poem which more than any captured the imagination of this new audience was not of his making. It is when you come to think of it remarkable how wrong the most sympathetic discoverers of Celtic literature have always been about the nature of their discovery. The romantic view has persisted since the time of the Ossian cult. What is usually forgotten is that the Celtic poet was essentially a professional craftsman. His was a social vocation and society paid him for his work. In Ireland, the decline of patronage after the break-up of the old social order did not really produce any fundamental change of attitude in this regard. The poets of the Hidden Ireland made their verse not just for their own satisfaction, but for the communities among whom they lived. They continued to chronicle and satirize and eulogize and lament as their predecessors had done. There was certainly now more room for individual feeling. The satire was more personal, the lament more deeply felt, but the sense of community also deepened in the common poverty of peasant and poet. It is against this background that we must see the life and work of Anton Raftery. He served in no princely household that day had long gone. He belonged to no bardic school, not even to the sort of court which the Munster poets of the eighteenth century preserved, but he had his patrons and he served them well. Men like Darby Clunan of Llough, in whose house the poet is still remembered.
4: He,
5: he, he made, it, made it his headquarters here at all times, and he was quite welcome every time he came, according to what I understand from the old people. And they never turned him out yet, and he night that he was short of a lodging. Never turned him out at all, and he ha- had the name of an old fiddle going, and he was no good at it, but he was the topper at the Irish and the poems. A topper.
1: A topper at the Irish and the poems. It is in its own way, I suppose, a fair enough epitaph. A more informed appreciation of raftery remains, of course, in those parts of East Galway which are still Irish-speaking, along with a vast store of information, some of it apocryphal, about his life and times. But the tradition persists, however imperfectly, even among the English speakers of the area. So strongly did this Gaelic poet leave the mark of his talent and of his personality on the folk mind. He was born in County Mayo, and it appears that his blindness was due to an attack of smallpox, contracted while he was still a boy. This blindness was responsible for his way of life. Unfitted for the more stable occupations, he set off as a travelling musician. And although, as we have heard, he wasn't much good at the fiddle, he had a greater gift. We're told that God offered him his choice of talents, and that he chose poetry, leaving music making to others, like his friend Tommaso of the piper, whose death he mourned in one of his best remembered songs.
3: It is Thomas O'Daly left aching in young hearts and old, and since death has waylaid well him, may the graces of God be his fold. This country is ailing, bewailing that fingers of gold, which made music like angels should be laid in the clay and the
6: cold. So, Jimmy, the shall fand the world is a very beautiful place when live. The world is a very beautiful place to live. The very it's the in well some tan the treasuring.
1: Thomas O'Dorla was, by all accounts, a good piper, but we may doubt if he would be remembered now more than any of the other country musicians of his time had not Raftery sung his praises. And so it was with countless others, priests and tradesmen and she bean keepers and farmers, insofar as they earned praise or blame from Raftery they are still remembered. Regine Vesey was just a little servant girl who showed kindness to the blind man, but she too has been made immortal. That recording of the poet's song for Brigine Vesey was made a few miles from Tune in the historic Kruppmure country, where the songs of Raftree were first taken down in all their perfection of melody a generation or two ago. But away to the southwest of the county, near the border of Clare, I heard a faint echo of the praise of Brigine in Douglas Hyde's translation which has been absorbed into the folk tradition.
7: And the shoeless, shirtless grieving, and foodless to my bleeding. And surely I'll not leave you, nine meals I'll fast for you. upon Pernlacher and Zeilen, no food, no drink beside me. I'm still hoping i may find you, my child, in to be true. Oh cheeks of oh, blue and bounding, oh berry of the mountain, your promise still sounding forever in my ear. And spite of clerics frowning, I'll take you as I found you, and as I would go bounding, galloping with
1: my ear. Many of the stories told about Raftery are trivial enough in all conscience, but they usually have a point.
0: Raftery poor, he was travelling through the east of Galway. And he went into a house, a country house, and he got a drink of water instead of a drink of milk. He went on for two miles further, he went into the Rebrian, he got a drink of new milk. He said the look, a milk can to Derry Bryan, if won't have a more easily.
1: And Pat Cooney, who told me that story, assured me solemnly that the poet's wish for Derry Bryan came true, Hornickshire Machine. Perhaps the fact that Pat hails from that part of the country himself had something to do with it. But it's worth noting that a poet's blessing was regarded as something worth having. It's also worth noting that the blessing was not given gratuitously. Pat Cooney had another story, which points in the same direction.
0: Throughout Paul was travelling, he went into a public house, and he got a drink and he sat down. The publican was talking to him. He says, that man has no handy gab, he says, no more than any other man. You give him nothing, says, another man to take handy gab out of him. So he picked a drink and he gave it to him. Rapporte wrote the drink. And he says, through the the haste, you see, grows the trine. Outside your shirt, you wear your body. In your right hand, you carry your coin. And here is your help, Mr. Hanin. Therefore, Hanin was the man's name that kept the public house.
1: There again, we have the idea of the poet's right to patronage. Even if he were only regarded as a clever rhymester, a man with an unusual gift of handy gab, it wasn't to be expected that he'd perform for nothing. Did you notice, by the way, the repeated use of the description, raftery poet? Poetry was a recognised trade, and there was a natural Freemasonry between practitioners of the craft.
7: There was a
0: poet from the north, and he did, with any man that he'd find out raftery poet without any person ever introducing them to him. He came to the Fair October, and there was tints, that him, in the pair of There was no public house in it. There was tints in it. And he'd look up at the show board wood, the, 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 the name, and he'd say, Isn't this a fine plant grown at, outside your door? When he came to the tint after he was in, after he answered inside, he said, That's a token for every man to come in to quench his thirst. I have a shilling to see. I'll win and drink it.
1: It would, however, be wrong to imagine that the poets were one big happy family. Raftery was, it appears, by no means tolerant of competition. The name of Sean Aburka has come down to us as the victim of one of our poets' most merciless essays in satire, his only crime being that he made a verse poking fun at the master. But Raftery's greatest rivals were two brothers, Patsy and Marcus O'Callman, who lived near Crockwell and who were both farmers and poets. Like all settled men, they resented the intruder from Mayo who came, charging the country and scolding the people, and taking his rent from each village, and unless he gets shelter and the full of his belly, tis he'll put an edge on his scissors. There's no doubt whatever but that Raftery had a sharp edge on his tongue, and that he exacted his rent as harshly as any landlord. His bardic contention with the Callanans was a bitter business, and the verses made on both sides make controversy as we know it now seem a gentle, insipid thing. But Patsy Cowman's descriptions of Raftery are of considerable interest, for, allowing for exaggeration and the desire to hurt, they do give us some
3: idea of his appearance. There were two legs under him like a beggar's stick, and they as thin as a packing needle, a hollow in the middle like a bockhock, and he carrying the bag that left the hump on him. His face was thin, sallow, worn, and blacker was his hair than the coal of Kilkenny, his eyes moving like two pails of water swimming down by the side of his cheeks. And again? Evil was his quality on coming to the country. He had a carbine of a hat upon him of the colour of snuff, on which there was a cord of tow turned and twisted, and a long time that hat had spent thrown on the hill. He had a greasy wrapper on him, and it were right to explain it for it's many the dab he used to put on its side pocket he had a dirty trouser on him down to the ground in which there were two hundred holes and every other patch a few weeks ago at rockfield near athan i thought to catch an echo of
1: the sound and fury of the controversy when i called on a grandson of one of the protagonists thomas but nothing could be gentler than his account of the battle as we sat there in his kitchen while his two budgies sang away merrily in their cage.
4: Of course, they used to be a good. They used to be a good friends, you see. Occasionally, but now and again, they're far out of it. But anyway, it happened that Rafferty made a song about cannon, and uh, there's a big comment to see officers were Caledon even for lived for I was born about six or seven hundred acres, and he said that he was a. He called them a, a rogue, see, a gussy out of the tunnels. They said, say no. And my, fa- my grandfather, uh, when he had the, the verse made, the song made, you see, he, he, he accused him of it. Uh, and he says, do you not understand, he says, that, that truth and rhyme doesn't agree. <laughs> you see, as much as you say, he said for, to make the rhyme, you see, truth and rhyme doesn't agree, he says. Well, no, sir, so my grandfather. And he, uh, my grandfather made another one about him. And he, he was asked at a party when I... And Raffery was at the party playing to see what the fiddle And uh, my grandfather was asked to recite it or sing it. He didn't care about doing it, but the pressed him but he had to do it anyway, he did. And Rafa came along uh, and when he had the song sung. He came back and he tried to get the grandfather to give him some sort of a back answer or another, but he didn't find him somewhere or another. But anyway he says the i never got to see what those
1: till
7: tonight
4: he a
1: the rivalry had at least one happy outcome for kelman made a song in praise of a local beauty called of Roon, and it became so popular that Raftery was forced to do better one saturday morning i was told he was in a public house in galway "'Ah, there, Raftery,' said one of the customers, Calnan has got the better of you at last.' Raftery said nothing, but everyone could tell he was raging. Then the girl who was serving the drink asked him what he'd have. She was a plain-looking girl, but Raftery looked at her for a minute as if she was Helen of Troy. "'I have him now,' says he. "'I've Calnan beaten.' And he had, for any poet could make a song for a beauty, but only Raftery could make a plain girl beautiful with a song."
3: There's a lovely poesy lives by the roadway. Deirdre was nowhere beside my jai. Nor Helen, who boasted of conquests Trojan, for whom was roasted the town of Troy. Her cheeks like roses through lilies growing, her mouth melodious with songs of glee. Such mien and motion were never noticed since Dido's poesy was in Ballydee.
6: (laughs) Agus <laughs> was she that the people who were living in grego er were living las the world. The people who Semina trer i ny och jag gädd vän Och djegun färdligt vid Malili Ta vägtern spär vän sig och få igles tid Labra gräns tradition Säle slast i hneblål och glädgål they
1: say that Myra Staunton, for all her plainness, got a good husband as a result of the song. But they say, too, that she was an exceptional case. For if it was a bad thing to have a poet blame you or curse you, it wasn't much better if he praised you. No one that ever had a song made in praise of them had any luck after, I was told again and again, when I brought up the name of Moyniyine, Mary Hines, the subject of what is, without any doubt, Raftery's loveliest song. For all her beauty and for all the praise Raftery gave her, she died in misfortune. I made a sentimental journey to Bally Lee, the scene of the poet's meeting with Mary, and there I met a namesake and kinsman of her own, Tommy Hines. He and Michael Mulcair of Kiltartan brought me past the old tower which bears witness to another poet's work. I, the poet William Yeats, with old millboards and sea-green slates and smithy-work from the Gort Forge, restored to this tower for my wife, George. They brought me to the place where Raftery is said to have lived for a while.
8: I have been told, you see, that we're standing in the spot almost where he lived
1: one time.
2: Was it that he had a house here?
8: That he
1: had a house here right behind you. Well, did he have his wife and his family here, or did he just come here in that time? Well, uh, he was a, a visitor here.
2: Aye. Well now, it was a place full of poetry, wasn't it? Undoubtedly. Oh, mm-hmm. Could you ask anything more poetic than the romantic castle of Bally Lee, where W.B. Yeats lived for a good part of his life, came here in the summertime. But of course, Raftree he was here long before W.B. Yeats. Well yes, know? but uh, then that makes it all the better, because there has been two poets here in Bally isn't that right? Huh. We've got two poets, Michel Raftree and Phila, I guess, either the poet William Yeats.
1: From there we went to see the ruined remains of the house of Mary Hines.
8: And this is the Bowery now that we're down to where Maureenie Hines lived one time. And along this boat in Raftery used to come to take her on to coal, and they'd be invited there. They'd be both invited there. Raftery of course to play and she to go with him.
1: I asked Tommy what she looked like and he gave me the same reply as I got everywhere. That she was the loveliest creature God ever made. He quoted the lines. I walked
8: through England and France for years once, through Spain and Greece on the long way home, and from Loch Rainy to Galway Quayside, her beauty equals I've never known.
1: And then he went back to the beginning of the story.
8: The mass path led me to the Lord of Graces. The skies were rainy, the wind was high. Beside Kiltartan I met a maiden whose eyes well laid me in sudden wine. I gave her greeting, polite and stately. She answered graciously as any queen. Or after he said she could fate be kinder now step beside me
6: to Balili. <laughs> اعو سیم لا از ام غلامی، لاور ملکی کمونچمانله، سریرک حالی افشان را گشی، چر دوچی برافری تامینچن سازدی، اگر سکوش کلا ام nor a poor man tarishkin near Lig Merkarje nor any Magari Agosyach Mohri a
1: Back in his house in Kiltartan, Michael Mulcair talked of the time when Lady Gregory came to her father to record his speech and tradition. I asked him what his father and the men of his generation thought of raftery.
2: Well, they always talked of Rathry as a man of genius, you know. He was, as I said, a real poet. He went down as a pillar of Irish literature, of Irish poetry. He, he, he has transcended as a pillar of Irish literature. Of course, the man was, as I said, was a poor man. He had poor surroundings, he had poor way for living and all that, but that doesn't take distract any one iota from him um, as a poet. In all probability, when Raftery lived, he was, what I might say, the sort of a genius, or the god of the locality. Did the people regard Raftery as one of themselves? Well, I wouldn't say that they'd altogether regard him as one of themselves. And yet, they wouldn't regard him as a strange outsider. Raftery was a man who, very probably, with a greater majority of the people, had a certain warmth. Whom they loved as a poet, and whom they loved as a musician, as I say but uh, I wouldn't think that they regarded him as one of themselves around here because he would be on a different status anyway to them. He was looked up to, I'm sure. I imagine he would be very much looked up to. Or at least amongst the people who liked Raftery and whom Raftery liked. Of course to the people whom Raftery didn't like, he was uh, i might put the term, a despised god in that respect.
1: Raftery was certainly his people's poet in time of misfortune. The tragic drowning on Lak when eleven young men and eight girls from Anna Down lost their lives, evoked from him as passionate a lament as any in our literature. If I live to tell it, they'll be remembered, though dead and buried in Anna Down.
9: my showing his father and a bow a son of my Kaheris
6: moher
9: ban spoište to šil sul. Arinong roaster kia pnawas paus. Narbe got in bert no tru. Ach lah brelish kun gui on a word, a
10: schoolboy
9: stood, not worthiness, a the scorn, a glory in
1: if Raftery spoke for his people in his lament for the tragedy of Anna down, he spoke for them too clearly and unambiguously, in matters
3: of even greater consequence. If I got your hand, it is I would take it, but not to shake it, O Dennis Brown, but to hang you high with a hempen cable and your feet unable to find the ground. For it's many the boy who was strong and able, you sent in chains with your tyrant frown, but they'll come again with the French flag waving and the French drums raving to strike you down. These fierce and bitter lines on the sadistic high sheriff of Mayo
1: have been attributed to Raftery, and they are certainly in the spirit of the songs he made for the resurgent Ireland which was born in 1798 in its long struggle for religious and civil freedom. For let there be no mistake about it, the inspiration that came from France and the leadership of the Anglo-Irish would never have sufficed to bring the nation to freedom had not the common people of Gaelic Ireland had their own leaders and their own inspiration. O'Connell professed to despise the Gaelic tradition but when Raftery hailed emancipation it was from the heart of that tradition he spoke.
3: The Greek and the Turk are hard at work and shall we boys shirk in the common weal when the French shall smite at the English might and Ireland light with the blaze of steel. Dear God who suffered for us on Friday may I never die till I see them reel, the orange men and an Irish pen We shall make them then come into heel. In the struggle
1: against the payment of tithes, Raftery's sharp, strong songs sounded a clear note of leadership. There is nothing parochial or provincial in his political outlook. Here, at least, he deserves to be called a national poet. Still, it was natural that the local tyranny, the injustice immediately experienced, awoke a special reaction in him. His lament for Antony Daly, A Galway white boy, who was hanged on Good Friday in the year 1820, is still sung,
3: and his curse on those who betrayed their friend is remembered. On the eve of Good Friday, the Gael was lying smit by the gall. On the same day, Christ dying, rose, buying the human race from its fall. God grants requital. In our crying there was no use at all. Cullen and his wife there took the life there of daily.
6: Lack therefore. Ah, make Aki
1: Raftery had a remarkable sense of history, and of national continuity. This is evident not only in his political songs, but also in his long poem, *Shanachas na in which ancient myth and modern history combine to form a coherent, if not entirely accurate, story of the Irish nation. The great wonder is where this blind, illiterate man acquired his vast store of fact and fiction. He learned a lot, no doubt, from the poorest scholars of the time, but he must have had an extraordinarily retentive memory. He was obviously familiar with a considerable body of the Gaelic poetry of the preceding two centuries, and we can only presume that this was the source also of his technical skill in the making of verse. But then, as one old man said to me...
7: "The poet, they say, is born, not made, is a, bar- is a born poet. There is much to and." members of Parliament, speech memory, they hadn't poets. There couldn't be poets, there isn't in them, they can make a fine speech, greater orators and then that sort of, which poetry is a gift.
1: I asked him what made Raftery's poems better than others, and he answered, nicer words, better placed, like a good mason, that, the way he placed the stones built in a house. I asked another man, did he ever hear any account of how ac- Raftery actually made his poems?
11: He used to make them, lying on his bed at night, and compose them. He, I think he wasn't able, he was sure he wasn't able to read, but he was getting them wrote in, he'd think of them next day, and he'd write it out for you, and he it out day. for you, and you'd write it down. He, he was gifted. Seen he seen the light of day once. He asked a gift to Dal, he asked a request to Dal, or a gift to Dal, God, to get one sight of the world, and he opened his two eyes, and he got one side of the world. He begged of God back again to take away sight. He was blind as a storm back again. He didn't want to see the world.
1: This same man, incidentally, would have none of the common opinion that Raftery was not a good fiddler. Far from it.
11: Huh? He was an extremist at the fiddle. He was very near next to Bach, the German, the first fiddler that ever was.
1: Marching Fury of Manonord agreed that he might not always have been such a good musician, but that something happened which made him one. I heard this
11: that he got a gift one night that he, he was drunk. I he brought into a furry port. And the next thing was they asked him to play. And he did play. So the next thing was then, what do you mean? And he went in and there was a queen there. And there was only subject, and uh, they pre- asked him to have uh, some wine. And some friend that knew him al- alive told him not to touch anything that he'd be offered. So with that, he played away for the time and he, he enjoyed the time, and they were the finest dancers and the finest quality that could be seen. But anyway, by great chance and by great risk, he made his way out. And he was never as good a player in his life as he was after that night. That he got that as a gift. But uh, if, if he ate or drank from them, to didn't know what had happened.
1: And so the legends grow about the memory of the poet. They say death came to him once as he laid in bed in a house in Galway, but that he asked for time to repent. His request was granted and he made his poem of repentance as so many of the ports of Ireland did before him. This poem was held in high honor long after his death and they say that Archbishop McHale held that it would gain him pardon if his sins were as many as the stars in the sky. Douglas Hyde has made a fine translation of the poem but here are a few verses from a folk translation which I found in a manuscript collection made at the turn of
3: the century. As I am old and my blossom faded, and my past years entirely wasted, nine fathoms deep I fell in sin, may the Lamb of God his mercy give. When I was young I had bad rules taken, both quarrelling and intoxication. I'd sooner on a Sabbath, drink or gamble, than attend my duties of a Sunday morning. To a woman in wedlock I had no disgust to become the object of my brutal lust. To cursing and swearing I was much inclined. May the Lord of mercy my errors hide. Whereas I am guilty and my crime so great, I hope the Lord will not think too late to lay all damage on my body down and the King of glory to save my soul. The day is gone and I did not heed until the crop was damaged all to the weed. May the King of justice give me space, my eyes to wet with the flood of grace. King of glory most divine Who transformed water into wine And delivered Jonas from the deep And well rewarded the penitent thief Glorious queen, mother and virgin It is to you I crave for an intercession That you would for me apply To your sweet Jesus who for us died I am like a desolate bush in a field Or like a boat that would loose the steer, That would be driven to shore by wave or tide Without provision, help or guide was
1: it, I wonder, during those years of respite that death gave to him that he resolved to revisit his home in County Mayo? This song is sung all over the West, but I remember especially the joy in the face of a very old man a few miles from the Mayo border as he recalled the lines. <laughs>
9: Ojo me my shadow to put my shotgun with this a a a
3: Now that spring's coming and the days start to lengthen, on Candlemas Day I'll highest anchor and go. I'll make no delay now I form my intention till I stand once again in the county Mayo. It's down in Morris my first night I'll be spending, and in Balla beside it there's drinking in store. I'll stay in Kilchamach till the month near its ending, and that's only two miles from Bale and Armour. I'll proclaim to the world that the heart in me rises like the winds when they rise and the mists clear away, thinking on Cara and Galen beside it, and the plains of Mayo as they stretch to Clough Bay. Caledon's the place that is all you be seeking, the fruit on the branch and the flower on the thorn, and were I but standing among my own people, old age would slip from me and again I'd be born. That
1: is, I think, by any standard, one of the great songs of exile. It is said that he knew the hour and the time appointed for his dying. Be that as it may, he came to Dirmidhar Tlunan of Lyakth one day in that bleak December of 1835 and lay down for the last time in the old barn. Peter Tlunan brought me to the place and told me what he knew.
5: In this barn he died and should be still he had yeah, to be as good as that roof there, in fact, only but for the council took the stones away there some t- dozen years ago. Uh, he, he felt sick here. He, he felt himself going back in, in, in life, I suppose, and he, he called here, and he remained three or four days, or five, I believe, in all, here, and he died putting his last hours here of his life. So decided in bringing him in, and he refused to come in. Into the house? Into the house, and uh, he said he died here, and this... Well, I think it would be about the fifth night he, he told them to watch him this night, that he'd, he'd be no longer alive in, in Ireland, or um, troubling them, rather. So with that, he died anyway, and the son of uh, Darby Clun, the son of Jermodokloon, and uh, uh, kept uh, watching him that night. And he died in the early hours of the morning, and when he, when he laid him out in a cool way, I suppose, he decided he'd go to bed himself and he went upstairs, up to bed. And next evening, they brought, tackled the and cat and brought him over to Lavallee Road and up to Killinian Moro or to Killinian Churchyard, and buried him there with the candles.
1: I went over to Killinian Churchyard, and there by the poet's grave, I heard the manner of his burying.
8: Well, of course, we all heard of that he died in through to dark, that he was taken from there sometime in the middle of the night and brought over here to cleaning. And there was a certain group that wanted to have him awake for the night. But I think there was too much games going on at that time. And the old people that respected him came here and buried him that night.
1: Who gave you that account?
8: I heard the old people ever tell that. That's the reason he was buried at night. And an old man, he lived down here now. That remembered he remembered that night. And he was only a child at the time. He's dead now for the last half twenty years anyway. And he said that how he remembered the grave was as they were burying him. The candles the head candles lit to not make the grave. <laughs> To all the work and that the candles never quenched and they thought it very strange and the night was pretty roof no. The their opinion was that there must be something very good in the man put no, no. with the fringes of life, that enabled the candles to stay at and made a pressure roof
1: night the candles never quenched some say too that at the hour of his death Peter Cloonan's barn shone with many lights. But Peter Cloonan says there was just one candle, as he learned one day when he was scutching wheat in the same barn.
5: One night Johnny Cloonan came up to the house asking me to go, go down scutching and wait for him. And I went down next morning, and we lit brought out a chair and a stone to crack, scutch the wheat. And he says, you're just in the car now, he says, for after he died. And in fact, he is the candlestick is there in the in the old window. And I went over and bit a hand in the candlestick and it melted before me, hands and went in dust. Gone with roast for so many years before that it was in it.
1: So after many years the vessel that held the flame has gone to dust.
2: But the flame still
1: burns.